This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 is brought to you by Fitz for Good. My passion at school was really science, and I always wanted to become a chemical engineer, in fact. This is Vitz Impacts for Good, and I'm Eusebius McKaiser. In this episode, we walk the halls of Chris Hani Baraguanath Academic Hospital and ask, why are the babies dying? In this episode, I share the research journey of a Vitz academic that led him to try and explain stillbirths in South Africa. It also highlights the circumstances and the struggle from which he came. How can an improvement in socioeconomic conditions contribute to the health and wellness of our country's youngest assets? Of the 2.6 million women that will have a stillbirth each year globally, 95% of that is in low-income countries, all over the income countries. In this podcast series, we speak to the researchers behind research and innovation tackling the world's most pressing challenges. More recently known for his work on vaccines for pregnant women and their young infants, Professor Shabir Mahdi's research has been pivotal in informing the World Health Organization and their treatment recommendations worldwide. As humanity faces serious challenges and crises on so many fronts, now more than ever, we must contribute solutions for our collective good. I'm Eusebius McKaiser, and in the Vitz Impacts for Good podcast series, I will introduce you to the work of a remarkable group of Vitz originators, academic researchers trying to find answers to some of the most important questions we are being asked right now. Through unique insights, innovation, and critical questioning, they are championing the thinking needed to solve our most pressing global and local concerns. In this episode, we speak to Wits University Professor Shabir Mahdi. Professor Mahdi, I'm looking forward to answering a very difficult existential question, why do our babies die? Thank you for being part of this podcast series. Before I do so, I'd like to understand how you got into this field as an intellectually curious creature born in the late 1970s in Johannesburg in South Africa. What did you want to be when you grew up? So what did I want to be when I grow up? Well, my passion at school was really science. And I always wanted to become a chemical engineer, in fact. Uh, but because of circumstances, I ended up inadvertently in, uh, doing medicine, uh, partly related to sort of social pressures in terms of expectations of people that were doing well in school in a community that I came from. But the reality is that do I regret it now? The answer is no. It was sort of a legacy of apartheid almost that I became a medical doctor. And to sort of unpack it, uh, the reality is that in the 1980s, uh, and I qualified, I graduated from high school in 1984, the options, of some, the options for someone of color in terms of being able to pursue an independent career pathway was fairly limited. Uh, you could become uh, pretty much a business person and be independent, or largely in a professional field, it was really only medicine that gave you the choice of being somewhat independent of the system that was in place at that point in time. Uh, my passion was to do engineering, chemical engineering in particular, but after all things considered, uh, and looking around for funding to be able to pursue my university studies, because my, father, my late father was a teacher, and he certainly wasn't going to be able to afford to put us through to university, the only funding options that were really available to me was to pursue medicine. Uh, and that, at the same time, there were social pressures in terms of my parents 
especially my father, who didn't, who also wanted to become a medical doctor at some point in his life, but wasn't able to actually gain access to university and ended up pursuing a career in terms of teaching. It was obviously his passion as well to want to see his children uh, basically embark on a career which he wasn't able to embark on. What is really interesting about academic biography is how personal biography shapes academic biography. We spoke to a younger Witz researcher in episode one, Michael Lucas, about how an operation involving his granny led him to really fascinating engineering research about developing through 3D printing technology applications that can reduce nasty organisms being on smartphones in the operation theatre. On the one hand, he was grateful, as listeners can hear by going to download the first episode, that the surgeon can communicate with the family during the operation. On the other hand, innovator in him wondered aloud about whether or not we can make those surfaces safer. And as we heard about his research, it made me look forward to episode two with you, because similarly, the question why do we have stillborn deaths in South Africa in high numbers is critically, critically important. But I want to ask you this question before we deep dive into that. How did you first develop an academic and intellectual curiosity about primary healthcare and in particular about the fate of babies before they are born and in the moments that they are born? So Eusebius, uh, as I was training to become a medical doctor, I actually belonged to an organization known as the Health Workers Association, which later changed into the South African Health Workers Congress. And the focus of that during the 1980s was really to try to uh, go into informal settlements. And there was an informal settlement in the township that I come from, from Indonesia, which absolutely, which had absolutely uh, no access to healthcare. So every Sunday, whilst being a medical student, uh, we used to go into that particular informal settlement, set up a military type of a tent, and basically provide some level of uh, care. And at that stage of my training, at least, I started to be exposed to children who were coming in with illnesses, which I knew could be prevented, uh, things such as measles, which I knew that there was a vaccine for, but yet we're seeing all of these children developing measles. And then we come across a number of uh, women uh, that were either delivering the babies too early, so that it's going into preterm labor, or they were coming in with stillbirths. And the question really arose as to what is it that's driving this poor pregnancy outcomes, especially in this low-income sort of settings. Obviously, there was a challenge in terms of limited access to antenatal care. But was antenatal care on its own going to be adequate in terms of preventing this sort of adverse fetal outcomes? So that was a question that always was in my mind, uh, but especially in the context of is there something that can be done to prevent it? So what we knew as an example for measles is that we've got a vaccine that was developed in the 1960s. Yet in the 1980s, we had hundreds of thousands of children, literally, that were dying of measles. And it was just a matter of these children not actually gaining access to the vaccine. The data is really interesting that... Of the millions of stillbirths occurring globally each year, a incredible disproportionate number, upwards of 90%, happen in low to middle income countries. And I would have thought that that then leads us to hypothesize two broad potential explanations. One is outside of 
would be mom's body. That has to do with the environment. And the other is to ask, unlikely as it might be, whether there is stuff happening inside mom's body that might explain this. What were your intuitions when you set out to understand the causes between the environment, such as what is happening in the hospital facility itself, or the potential for taking tissue from mom and having a look to see what might be happening in the body? So like you correctly pointed out, of the 2.6 million women that will have a stillbirth each year globally, 95% of that is in low-income countries or low-middle-income countries. Stunningly, uh, there's been very little progress has been made in the past 20 years in terms of reducing that number. And one of the key factors for that is really the absence of biological investigation as to the causes of the stillbirth. So I sort of stumbled upon this in relation to my interest for another organism, which is known as Grubisvac, which is one of the most important causes of sepsis in babies in the first few hours of life. And we're busy sort of trying to develop a vaccine against the GBS, against Grubisvac, that will be given to mothers to protect the babies. But during the course of this attempt at developing a vaccine, what ended up happening is that we asked ourselves, so there are babies that are born with Grubisvac, but that doesn't, what it sort of implies is that they're actually getting infected before they're even born, because one day north of life, at a time of birth, they're already distressed. So that led us to the pathway of basically deciding, so let's go and investigate the stillbirths. Now, like I said, stunningly, there's almost no work that's been done to do a biological investigation of stillbirths in women in Africa that are, del- that, in the women that are delivering in Africa. So we did something which was very simple. We examined the placenta of the baby and we took some blood from the baby and we sent that off for culture. And although the dogma has been that much, the causes of stillbirths in African context is because of obstetric complications and a whole lot of other sorts of issues, including possibly something like congenital syphilis, there was very little evidence to indicate that what was actually happening in a large majority of the stillbirths, what was causing the stillbirths, was infections that were occurring while the baby was still in the uterus. And these were infections that were occurring from bacteria that the women were colonized with. So by doing two simple investigations, taking some blood from the baby and examining the placenta, for the first time we were able to quantify that almost 25 to 30% of stillbirths are occurring because of what we would call an invasive bacterial infection of the fetus. Now, the reason why it's important is that there's a strong possibility that we can actually come up with interventions to actually mitigate those in utero invasive bacterial infections from occurring. Unfortunately, the lack in progress in terms of reducing the burden of stillbirths in low-income countries is really a function of the absence of the investigation of the causes of those stillbirths at a very granular level. When you undertook this research in a critically important paper as a WITS researcher with your fellow co-authors, how do you apportion the confluence of explanations in terms of which are the biggest explanations? So explain to me how factors such as even hypertension can make a difference. And unsurprisingly, for socioeconomic reasons, those are disproportionately found in the populations in low to middle income countries. That's one confounding factor. But then there is this business that we must return to shortly of bacterial infections in the actual public health system as well. So there 
there are a list of factors there which all combined give you a perfect storm for the children to be dying in birth. Which ones are the most important, even if all of them matter? So what we actually did in this particular sort of investigation is that we had a panel of uh, obstetricians, senior obstetricians, who after collating all of the clinical information of the individual, as well as all of the laboratory investigations that were done, on an individual case basis, they basically went into each case and came to some sort of a consensus in terms of what was the most likely cause of that particular stillbirth using sort of algorithms that have been developed by other individuals as well, including from the USA. So using this sort of algorithms, we were able to sort of paint the picture in broad strokes, but with a reasonable level of granularity in terms of attributing a particular stillbirth as being due to the underlying hypertension in a mother, or perhaps even diabetes in a mother, or due to an invasive bacterial infection of the fetus, or an obstetric complication. So unfortunately, part of the reasons why women have stillbirths is that in resource-constrained environments where you can't, as an example, do a cesarean quick enough, uh, the mother, the baby might be in distress, but the baby is not delivered soon enough, and hence the child sort of suffers, or the fetus suffers the brain damage because of the hypoxia. So, but what we essentially did was, is we unpacked all of the information for each individual case to try to ascertain the most likely cause of the stillbirth. But you correctly point out that there might be overlap in terms of some of these causes, but we tried to come to a best estimate as to which was a major mm. underlying factor that actually caused the stillbirth. As you pointed out, about 20 to 25% of the stillbirths are because of maternal medical conditions, hypertension being the foremost amongst those, and diabetes playing some role in it as well whilst about 25% were due to this invasive bacterial infections. And then you've got other complications, some of which unfortunately are not uh, amenable to much intervention, such as what we call antipartum hemorrhage or sort of bleeding behind the placenta, which is an unfortunate complication that occurs uh, in high income as well as in low middle income settings. Introduce listeners of this podcast series across the world to Chris Hani Baragwanath Academic Hospital. It is fascinating where it's located, near to where you grew up as well. It's a hospital we sometimes malign for its services. It's a hospital we sometimes praise as a place where, even outside of a war zone, many trainee doctors come to learn how to do trauma, for example. What was so interesting and special, particularly about the pregnant woman at this hospital that made for the ideal study of this incredible research that you focused on in recent years? So I think the reality for the community of Soweto, which has a population of about 1.5 million, is that uh, of which, uh, obviously, where there's very high unemployment and a majority of individuals in the community are dependent on public health facilities. The reality for most pregnant women in this community is that there are limited options in terms of where they can deliver. And in Soweto, there's already two hospitals. And until the, at the time of the study, there was actually only a single hospital, which serviced the entire population of Soweto, which was Krasani Garaguanas Hospital. So what that culminated in is roughly about 60 uh, deliveries occurring each day at a single facility. There's very few facilities in the entire world where there's roughly 60 deliveries occurring per day. So each year, there's roughly about 28,000, 23,000 deliveries that are occurring just at this hospital. 
and roughly about 7,000 at one of the surrounding clinics. But even at the surrounding clinics, if there's any complications, those mothers will be transferred immediately to Vera. So it provided us an opportunity of doing what we call a population-based study. We had a majority of mothers that are going to have an adverse pregnancy outcome are going to end up at Baraguanas Hospital. Now, despite all of the problems that Baraguanas Hospital faces, uh, the reality is that in the African context, this is probably as good a service as you would get anywhere else on the African continent. The staff are phenomenal in terms of the effort that they put in to make sure that they're able to deal with this sort of large numbers with the limited resources they've got. From an academic perspective, again, it's a very unique opportunity in terms of being able to get so many women delivering at a single facility, and then we're able to leverage on world-class sort of diagnostics mm. uh, because of the, the science that we've got, uh, the sciences that we've got in this country, because of the laboratory type of services that we've got in this country. We're able to leverage on that sort of scientific capacity and capabilities to do investigations which unfortunately is not possible in most other resource-constrained resource constrained countries and certainly uh, elsewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's sort of a unique confluence mm. of a very sort of targeted population that has got limited options in terms of where they can actually deliver, coupled with the type of uh, scientific uh, platforms that we've got that we can leverage on to actually make a difference in terms of understanding the causes of uh, adverse fetal outcomes. Professor Mahdi, the practical end to which understanding causes must conduce is finding a solution to a problem that can improve welfare in the population. What is fascinating in the context of COVID-19 is how not adhering to the fundamentals of hygiene can kill us and adhering to the fundamentals like washing your hands with soap can increase the odds of us being safe. And despite the enormous history of human innovation in engineering and in medicine, in 2020, we've come to learn that the fundamentals really do matter. Were you surprised? And speak into this for me at how important it then is to emphasize the importance of basic control within hospitals of keeping surfaces, equipment and everything else sterile and to minimise the risk of hospital-acquired infections as a key driver when it comes to this horrible scourge of stillbirths. I think you raised a number of important issues. Firstly, is that the type of healthcare services that we've got in South Africa in the public sector and in fact even in the private sector is at best fragile in terms of its capacity of actually to scale up uh, the services that are required in the context of the type of pandemic that we're facing currently. But like you pointed out, it has unmasked a number of issues, which has been a huge issue at, uh, in our public service as well as in our private service. And that is the large amount of what we call nosocomial transmission, hospital-acquired infections that occur both by way of um, hospital staff transmitting it on to patients and vice versa. And all of that goes to the basics about infection control practices. And that is something which unfortunately we really, really neglect in our services. And it's to the detriment of healthcare workers, it's also to the detriment of the patients at the service by these facilities. The absence or the large, the largely lacking presence of protective uh, equipment for our healthcare workers is something that has been with us for years, for decades. 
right? But we haven't really focused on it because it hasn't made it into the public domain. And now with COVID-19, for the first time, we sort of been able to emphasize the importance of PPE. And this is sort of a spark in a sense which needs to be used to ensure that moving forward, we become more conscious of this. So one of the sort of findings in another study of ours, which was very similar to what you're describing for stillbirths, is when we investigated neonates, babies that were under one month of age, when we looked at the causes of why those children were dying in hospital, what we found is that a child that's born premature, the most dangerous thing for that child is to actually be born in hospital because two-thirds of those children that die premature are dying because of infections which they actually acquire in the hospital, which is sort of completely unforgivable in a sense. In fact, it sort of borders on negligence. That is so incredible. I want you to underscore that. We often intuitively, as non-medics, think of the hospital as the gold standard of hygiene. You are suggesting from the data of this innovative study that you have done that very sadly, as we also see in parts of the world with the coronavirus, that you could be going to the hospital and acquire an infection rather than going to a place that is intrinsically the gold standard of health excellence. So, so that's unfortunate reality. Uh, like I said, with neonatal sepsis, and it's not unique to Berguanas, I have to say that. It happens in the private sector, it happens in many of our hospitals. Uh, occasionally, we get a huge cluster of these cases and it makes it into the media. As an example, uh, last year we had these outbreaks of ESBR Klebsiella uh, or completely resistant Klebsiella bugs. It makes it into the paper, but the reality is that this is a day-to-day -day occurrence in our public sector, in our private sector, which has been completely ignored. So it's sort of an endemic, it's sort of, it's not even an epidemic, it's endemic, mm. but it's a public health issue which has largely been ignored because of the sort of lack of adequate infection control practices. As you've observed with COVID-19, we've now had three hospitals in South Africa alone. We've had large number of healthcare workers that have been infected. Now, the dynamics of the COVID-19 and hospital-acquired infections is perhaps slightly different from those of what I'm describing in the neonates, but it all speaks to the same issue. And that is that we don't have strong enough infection control practices in our healthcare facilities, which lends itself to excess mobility and mortality on the part of patients and also unfortunately puts healthcare workers at risk of infection. Last question, Professor Mari, for this episode of the podcast series. Let's go back to the beginning. Life in the 70s and 80s in particular, when you were a lighty, were political, life is political still today. As you were talking to this issue, I was thinking to myself, how many governments have men in charge of budgets, men in charge of public health policy when it comes to maternal health. How important is it, stepping back from the details of your groundbreaking research, that we pay attention to state resources and divvy them up in a way that pays profound and close attention to the welfare of women in particular, which is often an issue that is off the radar of men who are in charge politically of health budgets the world over. Yeah, so you said this, I think you're sort of on point here. And the reality is that investing in maternal health and specifically investing 
the health of women that, is, that are pregnant has got multiple, multiple benefits. In addition to the direct benefit to the mother, delivering a newborn healthy baby, there's obviously the issue, there's also the issue that if you're basically able to adequately provide for a mother during pregnancy and she is able to deliver a child that's not too small for weight, uh, as an example, that child's likelihood of actually developing and his cognitive abilities moving forward is actually enhanced. If a baby is born underweight, that child is compromised from the time of birth moving forward for, on a number of fronts, in terms of their cognitive function, as well as in terms of their increased susceptibility to developing chronic heart disease, as an example. So investment in terms of maternal health is an absolute must, and is something which, like correctly pointed out, is largely pushed aside to the periphery because it involves a segment of the population who usually don't have that much of a say in terms of how health budgets need to be constructed. It falls under the domain of primary health care, which is something that we're very eager to talk about and champion. But the reality is that the amount of funding that's put into primary health care, both for maternal health as well as child health, and even, even the health of men, is something which is largely neglected at multiple levels in terms of investment, both in South Africa as well as elsewhere on the continent. Vets University researcher, Professor Shabir Mahdi, thanks for your research. Excellent. Hey, thanks, you, Sylvia. This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 was brought to you by Vets for Good.